morning, will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? (laughs) This morning's scripture comes from John chapter 20, verses 15 through 16. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. This is the word of the Lord. Great job. Praise God. Awesome. Let's go. Good morning, everyone. You may be seated. My name is Pastor Alberto. Welcome to the Springs. Uh, shout out to all you students. Look at all you guys. Welcome back from a hopefully very eventful, money-saving summer. Uh, ready to jump back into a rigorous semester. Uh, I, I see some faith. Uh, the faith dropped over here. Uh, over here there was relief. And then on this side, there's just flashbacks from 20, 30 years ago. So... Wow, uh, man, shout out to you guys. Uh, welcome back if you've been out for the summer, busy traveling. Uh, man, shout out to my wife, first Sunday, let's go. Baby Sophie in the room, I'm ready to preach. Uh, want to thank you guys for, for joining us this morning. If, if this is your first time joining us, uh, we gather for worship. We say this every Sunday, and, and worship isn't uh, what we think about sometimes with just the songs that we sing and the music that we listen to. Rather, what we see in Scripture is that worship is more of a God-centered life, centering our lives around God and exalting Him, not just in song, but in every single area and aspect. And so what's so unique in, uh, about this service is that Scripture's describe something that's called a a guaranteed area of encounter. And what that means is that there's specific things and specific places where God is uh, going to meet you and he is guaranteed to inhabit his people. And one of those is the gathering of the saints. The scripture says that when the people of God gather to worship, that he is in our midst. And that when we sing songs, he inhabits our praise. And that when we look at the word, the God of the word begins to meet us and transform us from the inside out. When we take communion, he is among us. And so everything that we're doing this morning is really centered around these movements in the scriptures that say, hey, you are sure to meet God. When you do and practice these things, these are no light things that we do. We really believe that we are experiencing God right now in this moment whether you realize it or not. And we say this often, I still believe it's true, that some of us will experience one degree of transformation, uh, like the thermostat taking forever to go down, just slowly getting there. And other of us will experience this radical 180, uh, where life will look so different because King Jesus has come in and, well, he truly transforms everything. I say that because I don't want you to sit here thinking about just another religious activity uh, that's going over time, maybe, and your stomach begins to grumble, and you're thinking, what's next for lunch plans? I want you to be on the edge of your seats, knowing that God's in our midst, and anything can happen. I want you to be thinking about the things that, that you've been longing for in your life for God to do, those areas of breakthrough and freedom. Uh, I want you to be thinking about these parts of your life that you want to see radically taken over by the Spirit of God. And let's believe that it's going to happen here this morning. Amen, church? 
So we are in a, in, in a series called Work, as you saw, called uh, Sacred Calling. And this is our, our third week going through this series. And you may be wondering, why are we doing a series at work? Uh, I want to get away from work, not, not, not talk about it. Uh, the reason why we're doing a series at work is because studies show that we'll spend one-third of our lives at work. Uh, we'll spend 90,000-plus hours working. And new studies are coming out that, that more than 50% of Americans are not satisfied with their work. And they don't know what to do about it. And yet there's this hopeful optimism that 36% of people believe that things will get better, but there's really no vision for how that's going to go about. And I believe, as we've been saying for the past few weeks, is that our work doesn't have to be this place where we have this dreadful experience waiting to clock out and move on with our life as we wait for payroll to hit. Rather, work can be what we just sang about, holy ground. A place of encountering God and being transformed by his presence. A place where we actually come alive as sort of like a greenhouse that's flourishing with growth, not a desert where things go to die. Now, when we talk about work, we're not just talking about uh, em- employment, gainful employment, you know, because uh, you, can, you can have, you can be working but not necessarily getting paid. Shout out to the, to the stay-at-home parents. That, uh, I think Brandy posted that uh, graphic about how these stay-at-home moms are working 14 plus hours a day with like maybe a one-hour break. If, if your kid gets a nap, it's, it's rigorous work. And, and they do it not because the kids are writing the checks and saying, hey, good job. They're doing it because the kids will die <laughs> if they don't do it. I think mine will. I don't know about yours. Uh, and so uh, work doesn't just mean gainful employment. Maybe you're a student in this room. Maybe you're starting your first day of class or, or the first day of your last year of classes. And, and, and that is your full-time job. It is a full-time job to be a student, to study, to work hard, to learn. And maybe you have to carry a part-time job on top of that. So what would it look like if, if our work, the place where we spend so much of our time, became the primary place for discipleship to Jesus? But if we're honest, and you and I know this to be true, is that work is hard. Work is incredibly difficult. Uh, Work can be the place of our greatest joys, but more often than not, it's the place of our greatest frustrations. Uh, We put our hand to the plow, we labor all day, and yet it seems like it's done in vain. You spend hours investing into a student, tasting the fruit of progress, taking several steps forward, only to take several steps back because the classroom is demanding and you're being stretched thin. You spend 14 hours a day at, with your kids every single day, pouring into little creatures that are emptying you faster than you can be refilled, and you can't remember the last time you've been decently filled. You study all day, all night. You actually take notes for once and you actually go to the library and you actually do the work only to receive a less than stellar grade on your test or assignment. You see, all of these experiences and mismatched expectations in one way or another leave us asking a universal question that can be phrased a thousand different ways but boils down to three words. What's the point? What's the point in putting in all of this effort if the return is going to be minimal? 
What's the point in actually doing a good job if I can just do the bare minimum and still get paid just as much? What's the point in showing up with a good attitude when no one else around me is having a good attitude and there's nothing good about my work? What is the point in honestly pursuing a degree if everyone else is pursuing it dishonestly? What's the point? And in one way or another, we arrive at this conclusion that has haunted us all. Is it meaningless? Is all of this meaningless? Which raises our question for today that if the Lord permits, we'll get to answer. And it's this. Well, then what exactly makes work truly meaningful? If life feels meaningless and it feels like my labor is done in vain, what brings meaning to this? What brings purpose to this? And to answer this question, we're going to visit three scenes. The first is the gardener. The second is the artist. And the third is the carpenter. If you're taking notes, I invite you to jot these down. The gardener, the artist, and the carpenter. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We celebrate that you're in our midst, uh, that the veil has been torn, that our circumstances don't dictate our experience of your presence. Rather, it's your grace, your love, and your mercy. Lord, we praise you this morning for being God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Scene one, the gardener. Uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter one. Uh, one of our values here at the Springs is the word. We are passionate about the word of God. We love the word of God so much so that we want every single person in this room to have a copy of uh, the scripture. So uh, I want to invite uh, my, uh, someone on the hospitality team to hand out some Bibles. We have some in the back. And if you need a Bible uh, this morning, I want you to shoot up your hand and we're going to put the copy of the scriptures in your hand. And that is our gift to you. You can take it home with you. So uh, anybody need one a Bible in the room? We got some over here in the corner. You can shoot up your hand. We'll put that in your hand, and, and that's yours to keep. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 27, a familiar place in this church that I pray that the Lord will breathe new life as we look at it with fresh eyes. It says this, uh, chapter, I think it's about page 1, if you just received that Bible. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27 says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Everyone say that word, likeness. And he let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In his image, he created him, male and female, he created them. So notice, the first page of scripture the first details the first word words in the bible reveal a god who works genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth i've heard it said this way in the beginning god went to work On the first day of work, God spoke light into existence. On the second day of work, God created the waters and the sky. On the third day of work, dry lands, the seas, plants, and trees were created. On the fourth day, the sun and the moon and the stars were created. On the fifth day of work, birds and sea creatures were created. On the sixth day of work, land animals were created. And last but not least, humans. 
And after all of this working, God rests. Now, why am I drawing attention to this? Because Genesis one twenty six said that, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which raises an important question if we're going to understand who God has created us to be in this world. And it's this, well, what is God like? Because it's said that we're made in his likeness. And elsewhere in the scriptures, you'll see that God is described as holy. We know that one, that that he is loving and merciful and graceful and kind. All of those Holy Ghost goosebump words, we're, we're familiar with those words. But in the first pages of scripture, we don't see that. What we see is a worker, a craftsman, an artist, and a gardener who creates and cultivates a world for humans to thrive in a a worker who brings the material world into being and calls it good and when god calls it good it's not simply a moral description hear me church it's a declaration of joy It's the joy that comes from delighting in his work. As Leland Riken describes it, it's the joy of an artist filling in a blank canvas. It's it's the joy of seeing your Ikea furniture piece finally come together after it being so disconnected. Now there's form. It's the joy of uh, your Pinterest recipe actually working out the way you envisioned it. Putting all of this stuff together and there's something whole. And then taking a step back and delighting in creation. That's the joy that God is experiencing when he says it is good. God is the gardener, the craftsman who creates a world that is purposeful and good. But he's also an artist who is creative and creates aesthetically pleasing creation. And God is introduced in the first pages of scripture as a worker, as an artist, creative, good, and purposeful. So church, to be created in his likeness means that there is creative and purposeful potential coursing through your veins. To be created in his likeness means that there's purposeful, redemptive, good power and authority that creates good in this world rushing through your veins waiting to come out of you to create peace and harmony in the world to be created in his likeness is to produce beauty and harmony and good in the world through our work that is meaningful so meaningful that it instills a deep purpose of joy in our souls work that is both beautiful and purposeful But you and I know that that is no longer the world that we live in. We know all too well the experience of work feeling unsatisfying and beauty being tainted. And why is this the experience? And and why is this what we see when we look out there? We'll look no further than Genesis chapter 3. Through man's disobedience, sin is introduced to the world. And now a beautiful world is tainted by sin. Gene Edward Veith says this, Adam's work remained. He was still commissioned as a gardener. And his commands to rule the earth and subdue it and increase and multiply were not rescinded. But now he had to labor under a curse. 
Now, remember what we said about that word curse. It's, a, it's not so much these uh, mythical curses that we see in uh, videos and movies, although there's some element to that in the scriptures. Rather, curse describes a new reality, a reality that wasn't once there, a reality of being disconnected from God and experiencing pain and brokenness and um, all sorts of insecurity and unhealth. And Gene uh, Edward goes on to say, now the ground would only yield the food he and his family needed to live through painful toil. Now his work would produce not just food, but thorns and thistles. It would hurt. That is to say that he would, his work would often be in vain, giving him what he did not want, frustrations and bleeding hands. His work previously so easy and pleasant in the Garden of Eden would now wear him out. And he must work by the sweat of his brow, This then is the human condition. Work is a blessing and work is a curse. Work can indeed feel satisfying and life-giving since it's what we were made for, but it can also feel frustrating, pointless, and exhausting. Work is a virtue, but it's tainted by sin. This is the new reality that you and I live in. But this is not the reality that God intended for us. And what we see from Genesis 3 onward is God is moving towards redeeming and restoring all that was lost to sin. And hear me, church, that includes your work. So what does that look like? Let's visit our second scene, the artist. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 31, verse 1 through 11. Flip a couple pages over and you'll find it. Exodus chapter 31, verse 1 through 11, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel. Say that with me, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work every craft. Behold, I've appointed Aholiab, the son of Ahizmach, of the tribe of Dan, and I've given to, to all able men ability that they may make all that I've commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and, they fi- and the finely worked garments, the garments of for Aaron the priest and the garments of his son for their service as priest and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. Now this right here is a nice Airbnb description. It's right here, the, the, the Lord's dwelling place, the temple, the tent of meeting. You see, at the center of the redemption story in the scriptures is the temple. Now, the temple represented God's dwelling place, the place where his presence would come and momentarily rest among creation. And in the ancient Near East, in this Hebrew culture, the temple was the center of all matters of life. Now, remember, the temple symbolizes God's presence dwelling with his people. And the people of God are called to love God exclusively with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and make him central. In all matters of life, ethics, and conduct. And so, for this reason, 
the temple, the place of worship, played a central role in social, religious, and political life of ancient Israel. It's the place where social, political, and economic values in the everyday life intersected with God's divine presence and recentered life around God. You see, the ancient idea was to live a temple-centered life, and to be temple-centered meant that you were God-centered. The idea of going to the temple meant that you were taking all of the things that uh, were causing you to be off-centered by sin to be re-centered by God. And the guy who is employed to draw up the blueprints and organize the crew to build God's dwelling place, the temple, is a guy named Bezalel. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the, the son of Uri, son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Holy Spirit, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship, to de- devise artistic designs, to, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Spoiler alert. This right here is what made me do laps around the church this week. That means I got excited about it. This is uh, just getting to know me. Now, why am I so excited about this? And, and why is this so amazing? Look at verse 3 again. The ordinary artist and the ordinary contractor carpenter is filled with the Spirit of God. Now, now, why does this matter? And why is this significant? And why am I so excited about this? Church, hear me. This is the first time in all of the scriptures that someone is mentioned being filled with the Spirit of God. The first time in the pages of scripture, the first person ever mentioned in this way to be filled with the spirit of God is not some religious leader like Abraham or an heir like Isaac or Jacob or a prophet or priest. It's not even Moses himself. It's not some great spiritual leader. The first person described as being filled with the spirit of God is an artist. A white-collar architect and a blue-collar carpenter. The first time someone is mentioned being filled with the Spirit of God. Notice, it wasn't to rally individuals with a great prophetic word. It wasn't to work a miracle and split the Red Sea. It wasn't to endure suffering for the kingdom and put on a great show. No, the first time someone is mentioned being filled with the Spirit of God is to work. Often overlooked, normal, ordinary work. Stonework. Metalwork. Carpentry. Bezalel, a master craftsman and a skilled artist, an architect appointed by God to create the place where God's presence would meet with God's people. Now, why does this matter? You see, the work of redemption The work of God redeeming and restoring and renewing all things that were lost to sin is being moved forward, not by priests and prophets, though they have a part to play. It's moved forward by ordinary workers. Like Bezalel, who's filled with the Spirit of God. It's moved forward with unimpressive field workers like David, who is filled with the Spirit of God to inch forward the work of redemption. It looks like ordinary sons and daughters being filled with the Spirit, like Esther, Ruth, Gideon, or Joseph, empowered by the Spirit to create good in the world. Hear me. 
what made their work meaningful? Being filled with the Spirit of God. You see, your work can be the place where you connect with God and other people can connect to God through you because you're so filled with the Spirit of God that you're hosting His presence wherever you find yourself. As you're drawing up math equations on the chalkboard or mopping the floor or fixing the car or taking measurements or delivering Uber, whatever it is, can be a place of radical encounter. Why? Because you're filled with the Spirit of God and He brings new meaning, new perspective new outlooks on your work. Being filled with the Spirit of God can take ordinary, meaningless work and infuse it with beauty and meaning. Why? Because the recreator is restoring and redeeming all that was lost to sin through your work. Now, how can we be filled with the Spirit of God? Let's visit our last scene, the carpenter. Mark chapter 6, we're making our way to the New Testament. Verse 1 through 6 says this, He went away from there, speaking of Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, well, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and uh, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Now, uh, verse 2 says, He began to teach, and they were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Which raises the question, well, what exactly is Jesus teaching? What is he saying that's so perplexing and scandalous that has riled up the religious leaders? Well, we turn to Luke's description of this event, and this is what he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 22. And Jesus came to Nazareth, his hometown, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and this is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set, uh, to pro- to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, all eyes, all the eyes were on him, fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son, the carpenter, the regular, ordinary, blue-collar worker? Did you see it? The Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God that was at work in creation in the first pages of Scripture that we read, creating a world that would glorify God for humans to enjoy and work in and flourish in. And in different moments in the Scriptures, the Spirit of God would temporarily fall on individuals and fill them like Bezalel, empowering ordinary workers to build and create extraordinary things for God. But now an ordinary carpenter has arrived, and what does he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
And what is his work? Reversing the effects of sins, reuniting heaven and earth, bringing the orphan home, healing the sick, proclaiming good news to the poor, and setting the enslaved free. This is the good news of the kingdom of God, that the fallen world has been visited by its, re- by its creator, and the creator is recreating everything. The good news of the kingdom of God is that our fallen world has been visited by the creator, King Jesus, and King Jesus is recreating everything. Now, he's not just a carpenter. He's also a gardener. Turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 11 through 16. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she said, and she, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. At this point, uh, Jesus has been uh, buried after he's hung on the cross. He's died, and people's hopes have been lost and have been buried with him. And as was custom for people to visit the tomb, that's where Mary finds herself, and she looks into the tomb, and it's empty. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Some believe that the tomb was empty because uh, robbers had gone in by night and stolen the body of Jesus. Uh, others believe that they arrived at the wrong tomb, and others believe that this women were just caught in a hysterical act, and uh, Jesus' body was there. They just didn't see it or for whatever reason couldn't process it correctly. But that's not the case. We go on to read, and it says this. She turned around and saw Jesus standing. John informs us that she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her in a moment of compassion, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, you know this passage of scripture. You've probably heard it preached. We preach it here on Easter and we focus on the empty tomb and the resurrection, which is a glorious reality. But there's an often overlooked part in the scripture that we pay no attention to because of the way it was written, and it's found in verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener. Now, why did Mary suppose Jesus to be the gardener? I think it's because Jesus looked like a gardener. That simple. Uh, You don't suppose a Whataburger worker to be a Chick-fil-A worker when they're in uniform. You just suppose that they work for the great, you know, Orange W., And I think Mary sees Jesus, and what she sees is Jesus revealing himself as a gardener. And what's so significant about this church, hear me, is that the first revelation of the resurrected Jesus in the New Testament is not some high king, it's not some priest in robes, it's not this uh, political elite figure, it's a worker, It's a gardener. The first revelation of the resurrected Jesus is the gardener. The better Adam, the gardener who did not fail, where the first Adam was commissioned to work and cultivate the land and failed. This gardener did not fail and he rose from the dead, conquered sin, reversing the effects of sin, reuniting heaven and earth and recreating all that was lost in creation. This gardener, this Jesus, is the better Adam. When Jesus arrives as a carpenter, what he does immediately is he dignifies all work. 
As Martin Luther would say, the stay-at-home mom or, or the maid or servant in the house is just as holy and just as sacred as the priest locked away in the monastery. That when Jesus arrives and reveals himself as a carpenter and takes a normal job and swings a hammer, he reveals to us that there's dignity in our work. Why? Because God himself works. And when Jesus reveals himself as the resurrected gardener, he shows us that that the meaning of our work can be restored. That in Christ Jesus and through the gospel, our work doesn't have to be a place where we go to die, but rather like a good uh, uh, field, the gardener can come in and cultivate harvest and fruit and holiness in our life, the fruit of the spirit that we couldn't do on our own if we graciously invite him to till the soil of our lives, including the soil that's at work. You see, Jesus is the better Adam, the first Adam ruling and reigning over creation. Jesus is the better Adam who brings new creation, who brings meaning to all work and dignifies work because he himself works. And hear me, church, he shows us that our value is not received in whether or not our work is life-giving or valuable in and of itself. Rather, we find value by being connected to God and being filled with the Spirit. You see, something as ordinary as gardening has now been redeemed by King Jesus. And now King Jesus empowers people to enter every area of life with the same Spirit that filled Bezalel and David and Christ himself to go in the power of God to create good in the world through your work. Why does this matter? You see, the story of redemption the story of reuniting heaven and earth and renewing all things is not carried out in my world, but in yours. The story of reuniting heaven and earth and redeeming all that was lost to sin in the scriptures is not being played out in in my world of prayer meetings and sermon prep and discipleship groups and random administrative church functions, although there is something redemptive about that and the Lord uses it but the primary testimony we see in scripture is that the story of redemption is being moved forward in your work. And you going in and clocking into a job that maybe you're not truly satisfied with and and doing the same mundane curriculum and fixing and working and carpentry and ordinary blue-collar work like masonry and yard or white-collar work like engineering, whatever it is. The story of redemption is being played out there and being moved out there. Your work, when filled with the Spirit of God and brought before Him, is made beautiful and meaningful all over again. Your work can be the place where you connect with God and others connect to God through you. Beautiful work. Meaningful work. Why? Because it's infused, filled, overflowing with the Spirit of God. This empowering presence of God is available for you in the toil of studying and learning and waking up early to go to classes you don't want to be in and spending long nights studying something that you're not even interested in. This empowering presence of God is available for you as you're teaching and disciplining and pouring yourself out into students who not who may not be reciprocating the same love. 
The empowering presence of God is available for you as you're building a family or building a team at work. This empowering presence is available for you in the office, in the car, in the shop, in the kitchen, bringing new meaning because Jesus died to make you a new creation and his gospel brings new meaning and purpose to the ordinary things of life. What makes work truly meaningful? The spirit of God filling you. And that work through you. Now remember what we said earlier. God is incredibly powerful as we see him at work in creation, but he's also gentle. And rarely will he invade the areas of our lives uninvited. He's too kind and too loving to do that. So I believe this moment is an invitation by God to invite him into the ordinary parts of your life. Into the ordinary parts of your work that seem meaningless. Robbed of purpose. And ask him to fill you with the spirit of God. To breathe, bring new meaning to your major. Bring new meaning to your household work. Bring new meaning to your classroom and day-to-day life where you would spend 90,000 hours. Let's invite the king to do that in prayer.